Please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 15 through 23. Nehemiah 4, 15 through 23. Now remember, it's been a, about 140 years since the people of Judah were conquered by the Babylonians and taken away into captivity in 586 B.C. The good news is that after 70 years of captivity, the deported Jews were given the opportunity to return to their homeland, to rebuild the temple, and to lay a spiritual foundation for Israel once again. And while this is some very good news, we learn that decades later, the people who had returned to the promised land were in great distress and reproach, and also that the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still in shambles, which is some very bad news. Well, as we know, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Babylon, heard about this bad news, And by the good hand of God upon him, Nehemiah was allowed to go to Jerusalem to help these struggling people and to do his best to restore and to rebuild Judah and the city of Jerusalem, which still had no walls around it. Well, as we saw, Nehemiah arrived a few days later. He inspected the walls of the city at night, and then he rallied the people to get to work on rebuilding the city walls, which they earnestly did. Why did they do that? Because this was much more than just a rebuilding project that protected the city from its many enemies, but even more, this was a spiritual endeavor that greatly honored the God whom they loved. And walls around the city of Jerusalem represented that God was with them once again. So they worked hard, even though they were literally, literally surrounded by enemies who were bent on stopping the work, threatening both violence and destruction. At that point, between verses 14 and 15, work on the wall did indeed stop, but only for a short time in order to establish a defense in the parts of the city that remained exposed, that remained vulnerable. So Nehemiah positioned some of the people in those vulnerable areas, and as we saw, he armed them with swords, spears, and bows. He also encouraged them in verse 13, which they needed, do not be afraid of them, the enemies. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So the people did that. They stood strong for the glory of God. Oh yes, some wavered for a second, but they got refocused under Nehemiah's godly leadership. And they stood strong in the face of fear, adversity, and enemies. And they're a great example for us today. Now what? Let's find out verse 15. And it happened... When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. We'll stop here for now, and here in today's passage, we continue to find the people working on the wall, even though enemies are surrounding them. As we look at this, four truths are worthy of taking note of. First, that God brought the enemy's plot to nothing. God did it. Remember? The many enemies are plotting to attack the Jews, and while the enemies knew that Nehemiah had the backing of the king, it also seems clear that they could have gotten away with an attack on the Jews and lied to the king about what had really happened, because that very thing had worked not too many years before. But God's people heard about the plot to attack. They prayed to God, very wise. Then they set up a guard, again, very wise, And look, when the enemies realized that they couldn't surprise the Jews, their plot withered away because God had frustrated it, because God had brought their plot to nothing. And so they all returned to the wall, and they continued working on the wall. Yes, there had been a brief delay, but that delay didn't last long, and now the people are continuing to work on building that 
very important wall around the city of Jerusalem, the wall that protected the city from their enemies, but even more, again, the wall that represented that God was with His people once again. So, question. Who brought this plot to nothing? Yeah, good answer. Very good. God did it. God did. And Nehemiah did well to give God the credit here. Because it wouldn't have taken much, again, for the enemies to attack the Jews and not only stop that wall building project, but to kill a whole bunch of Jews in the process because the enemies were more numerous, they were more powerful, and they had better weapons than the Jews had by far. So Nehemiah does well to recognize that God was the one who was protecting his people, that God was the one who brought this plot to nothing. This all goes to the sovereignty of God, to the providence of God, which Nehemiah clearly believed in. What is the sovereignty of God? A.W. Pink says it like this. What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. (laughs) To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What are you doing? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor of among the nations, Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth Him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. Such is the God of the Bible. And that's absolutely right, and it's important for us to understand that our God, Nehemiah knew this, that our God, the God of the Bible, is a sovereign God. He is our creator. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's in charge. His hand of providence rules over all. See, he answers to no one. He is above all. He gets his way. He's not merely first among the gods, but he is the one and only God who is sovereign over all things. Sovereignty means that there are no limits to God's rule. See, he's sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He's never hopeless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. Whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do a thing that he despises. He's never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something that he hates to do. No, he does whatever he pleases and nothing can stop that from happening, even adversaries, even enemies. In Acts 17, Paul says that God is sovereign. (laughs) He says, God has determined people's pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So it's God alone who determines these things. The word determine means to fix, to mark out definitely, to appoint, to designate, to decide. This tells us that an all-wise, sovereign God has a predetermined plan for the world, including you. Pre-appointed times refers to the fact that God is in control of the rise and fall of nations and of cultures. See, He orders it, He decides what's going to happen, He arranges it. God also providentially governs the world in which He has set man's boundaries. That means that He's determined where people live and how long they're going to live there. 
He also determines the geographical boundaries of every nation. He's sovereign over all, and the Bible says that. Now, when theologians speak of this truth, they refer to the hidden counsels of God. That means that what God is doing in history isn't always directly revealed in Scripture. Many times we look at the world scene and see things that happen haphazardly as if there's no guiding principle. Anybody? (laughs) But looking back, we can see the invisible hand of God at work raising up one nation, one leader, one army, and bringing down another. As one said, history is His story. That means that God has the final say in every battle, every ruler rising to power, every coup, every election, every pandemic, and every government edict. We generally don't see the big picture as it unfolds before us, and sometimes we don't even see the big picture as we look back. But Scripture assures us that even in those events that seem to be out of control, God is still at work behind the scenes and nothing is out of His sovereign control. That said, please note this, that while God is sovereign, at the same time, humanity is fully responsible and accountable to God. God's sovereignty, see, doesn't cancel out human responsibility. Look, the fact that sin still exists at all proves that all things that occur are not the direct actions of God, even though God's a sovereign God. And while God made humanity with the possibility of sinning, knowing that they would sin, God is not the author of sin, even though He's a sovereign God over all things. Biblically, God doesn't lead anyone into sin. God never tempts anyone to sin. And of course, God hates sin. And yet, God is still God overall, using all of it for His eternal and sovereign purposes, even using the evil that man does. See, sin is still sin and evil is still evil, but God is greater than the evil. And God is determined to, and He will, accomplish His sovereign purposes through it all. So look, sometimes in His sovereignty... God chooses to allow things that He doesn't directly cause. That's called God's permissive will. We see that fact in the story of Joseph, remember? Joseph, one of the sons of Israel, is betrayed by his other brothers and sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. After serving in the house of Potiphar, he's unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, and he's thrown into prison. Ultimately, he's delivered from prison by God, and he's raised up to be the one through whom God rescued Israel and blessed the nations during the famine. Later on, Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt, and they then stood before Joseph, whom they didn't recognize wanting food. In Genesis 45.4, Joseph said this to his brothers, come near me, please. So they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Isn't that amazing? That, yes, that is amazing. And then in Genesis 15, 20, he adds, 50, 20, he adds, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see that? Joseph's brothers sinned and they are fully responsible and accountable for their wretched sin. But God in his sovereignty fulfilled his good purposes through it all, even through Joseph's brothers' sin. So biblically, God is sovereign, God is in control, God reigns supreme, and nothing can hinder His plan. And at the same time, man is responsible and accountable for all of his actions. That means that biblically, God knows what He's doing with all this, and even sin 
can't hinder God's plan. Come on, isn't that good news for us? Because we look and we see all this wretched sin going on, but we know that God knows what he's allowing and God knows what he's doing. And in the end, it's all good. How does he do all that? It's beyond us, but the Bible is very clear. Many, even in the church, don't believe this. I pray you believe this. I remember after 9-11 that one pastor in town came up to me and said, direct quote, God didn't know. Pastor, he said that. But that's not the God of the Bible. Certainly God does know because He's sovereign over all things. That pastor's God is a small God who doesn't know. But the God of the Bible is a big God who knows, who is sovereign. The Bible's very clear about that. And who's able to use even tragedy and even sin to accomplish His divine purposes. See, God's in charge. God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's allowing. And This isn't out of his sovereign care. And his plans will be accomplished for his own good glory and for us as children. And even sin or enemies can't stop his purposes from being accomplished. Why is this important to understand this doctrine? A.W. Pink gives us a couple of reasons. First, he says it fosters a healthy fear and reverence for God, which is the beginning of true wisdom. God is God, and I am not, and I do well to live like I believe that truth, because I don't understand all these things. Second, understanding this doctrine leads to an obedient walk. Irreverence begets disobedience. But a biblical sight of God leads to a realization of our littleness and nothingness, and then it results in a sense of dependency and of casting ourselves upon God. Third, understanding this doctrine, Pink says, excludes all murmuring. See, it's natural to murmur against affliction and against losses. It's natural to complain when we're deprived of those things that we set our hearts on. And when disappointment comes, or pain, or bankruptcy, or trial, or hardship, or loss, or death, the instinct of the human heart is to cry out against God. However, in the one who has recognized God's sovereignty, such murmuring is silenced and instead there's a bowing to the divine will and an acknowledgement that things aren't as bad as we deserve and we trust Him even though we don't understand all His ways sometimes. Take Job for example. Job was one who feared God and hated evil. And if ever there was one who might reasonably uh, be expected for divine providence to smile upon him, it would have been Job. But what happened? Things were good for a long time until things got bad. And his bright life became hidden behind some very dark clouds. Remember? In a single day, Job lost not only his flocks and herds, but his sons and daughters as well. How did he respond to all that? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. See, he bowed to the sovereign will of God. He looked behind the Sabaeans who stole his cattle and behind the winds that destroyed his children and he saw the hand of God. But not only did Job recognize God's sovereignty, he also rejoiced in it. The Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. And what? What? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you you really trust Him? Do you really trust Him? How big is your God? Pink reminds us that the divine potter has absolute power over the clay and molds it according to his sovereign pleasure, for it's the Lord's will that we must bow to. See, it's for him to say where I shall live, whether in America or in 
Africa. It's for him to determine under what circumstances I shall live, whether amid wealth or poverty, whether in health or in sickness. It's for him to say how long I shall live, whether I shall be cut down in youth like a flower of the field, or whether I'll continue to live for 50 more years. God knows what's best. God does what's best. And even sin won't hinder God's sovereign plan. And he works even that out for his eternal glory and for our eternal good. Doesn't always feel good, but again, How big is your God? How much do you trust Him? Is your God truly the God of the Bible? Fourth, understanding this doctrine will cause us to say with the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless His holy name. Take Job again. What did he do when all that tragedy came upon him? He bowed in worship to God. Pink says, Ah, dear reader, there is no real rest for your poor heart until you learn to see the hand of God in everything. Divine sovereignty isn't the sovereignty of a tyrannical despot, but the exercised pleasure of one who is infinitely wise and good. And because God is infinitely wise, He cannot err. And because He is infinitely righteous, He will do no wrong. Especially for you, His beloved child that He died to save. That He died for to save. So again, how big is your God? Do you really trust Him? Is He big enough to work out your pain, your trial, your tragedy, your hurt for His good pleasure and for your eternal good? The Bible says that He is. Will you trust and love Him even when you can't trace His ways? Is He big enough to do that? Is He able to do that? Again, the Bible says that He is. Some 200 years ago, a man named Gaio, after 10 years spent in a dungeon, lying far below the surface of the ground, lit only by a candle at mealtimes, wrote these words. A little bird I am, shut from the fields of air. Yet in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God, it pleases thee. Not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long. And he who most... The singing gets me. It gets me. And he who most I love to please doth listen to my song. He caught and bound my wandering wing. But still, he bends to hear me sing. Ah, it is good to soar, these bolts and bars above, to him whose purpose I adore, as she's singing in the prison, whose providence I love, and in thy mighty will to find the joy, the freedom of the mind. How big is your God? Biblically, God is sovereign, and we can either reject that and get bitter, or we bow to it and we sing in the prison. We trust Him in the pain. We worship in the trial, knowing that He knows and that He will sovereignly work this out for His glory and for our eternal good, because He loves us, His beloved children. How big is your God? The God of the Bible is a sovereign God who has us all worked out, even the sin Even the pain and the trials and the tragedies. And in the end, it's all good for us who believe on Him. Nehemiah knew that. And that's why he credited his enemy's plot coming to nothing to God. Because God is sovereign and God is powerful. And a massive army against God is nothing for a tiny little army with God. 
And so second, everyone returned to the wall and look, they did whatever they needed to complete the wall, verses 16 through 18. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held their spears, their shields, their bows and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So, yeah, the work stopped for a brief time but now after stationing people along the wall according to their families and the proximity of their houses, Nehemiah motivated the people to take up the work once again. And so half of them engaged in building and the other half kept on the lookout for enemy activity as they were armed with spears, shields, bows, and armor. You picture it? I mean... This is quite intense. <laughs> try to try to picture it. In verse 23, Nehemiah tells us that they kept their weapons at hand even when they went for water. So again, this is very intense. See, because the work was spread over the entire city and a sneak attack on one side of the city could bring disaster before the rest of the city knew anything about it, Nehemiah used a trumpeter to sound warnings which would serve as a signal for all the people to gather at a certain location should an attack occur. The trumpeter stayed close to Nehemiah at all times. And look, even the builders wore swords strapped to their sides. And in case there was an attack, they could put down their construction tools and be ready to fight the enemy. You see the picture? They are on high alert. Right? High. Always watching, ready, prepared for an attack, a looming attack. And and doesn't that apply to us today in the spiritual realm? You know, uh, what was true for them physically, is very true for us today spiritually. As Christians, we're called to be on the alert like them because our enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and being ready and watchful and alert is a must for all of us. As Keith Green sang, the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. And too many today are asleep and when we're called to be vigilant. Too many are lulled to sleep into spiritual slumber. Lulled by the world. Lulled by pleasure. Lulled by money. Lulled by sin. Lulled by self-satisfaction. Lulled by those around us. But the call for us in Christ is to be sober, to be careful, to stay alert, to think clearly. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter tells us to be vigilant. Vigilant means to be watchful, alert, awake, and ready. It means to give strict attention to, to be active, to take heed so that you don't let anything overtake you. The early Greeks used this word to describe people carefully crossing a river while stepping on slippery stones. If they didn't pay strict attention to their steps, they would end up in the water. The call is to be spiritually vigilant, to be spiritually awake. It's as if we are like a sentry constantly on guard duty at the door of our mind and at the gate of our eyes and ears and heart, alert for any deceptive and seducive intruders, any enemies to our souls. See, a vigilant heart is disciplined and it prays and it soaks up God's Word and it gathers for corporate worship and hangs around God's people. It doesn't toy with sin but flees sin. It serves. It, it's careful to not open doors for sin to come in. It protects itself. It doesn't make excuses for sin and, and for compromise. And it works hard to honor God with the short time it has left. What about you? 
Are you spiritually alert? This is so important. Why? Because, again, we have a real enemy who really hates us and who really does want to devour us. The devil is not only the adversary of God and he's not only the adversary of holy angels, but he's your adversary as a believer. And we need to understand that. We need to be aware of that at all times because he's very tricky. He's very sneaky. He's very sinfully wise. Adversary means enemy. Someone who's actively and continuously hostile towards someone else. An adversary is one who contends with, opposes, and resists another. The physical enemy for the Jews was all the people who surrounded them and who wanted to stop them from doing God's work, working on that wall. Our enemy as Christians today is the devil. Again, First Peter says that he is described as one who walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, someone to devour, and he wants to devour you. The devil is real, and he wants to eat you for lunch. The devil has you in his sights. He's seeking you out. He's looking for people to pick off the herd. He's constantly on a search and destroy mission, and he's deadly serious in what he does. He's always busy. He, he takes no time off. He's always looking for an opening, seeking, 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 seeking. Our call then? Strap on the armor of God and continue to do the work. Don't, don't set the armor down. I mean, that wasn't the call for the people of Nehemiah's day. No, keep the armor on and continue to do the work of God. Don't listen to the devil's lies. No, keep working. Don't get discouraged. No, keep working. Don't let fear and doubt overcome you. No, keep working. Now, please remember that while Satan is a very powerful enemy, look, greater is he that is in you, God, than he who is in the world, right? Satan really is a defeated foe and his doom is certain. Satan is acting on a leash and God has the leash. And Satan's no match for the Lord God Almighty. That being said, we still need to be sober. We still need to be vigilant. Satan wants you. He wants you to compromise. He wants you to indulge sin. Satan wants you to stay away from church. He wants you to be weak in prayer. He wants you to Put down your Bible and pick up the remote. He wants you to push God aside for other things. Kids, money, work. He wants you to give in to little compromises and sins so He can lull you slowly away. He wants you to not use your gifts to serve in the church. He wants you to not examine yourself and get comfortable so you're not growing. He wants you to not share your faith with others, to flicker the light of Christ, to be ashamed of the gospel. He wants you to hang around with people who don't love the Lord and and spurn the people of God. That's what he wants. See, what was happening to Nehemiah and the others really is a great picture of what's going on in the spiritual realm today. What matters? Only pleasing God matters. First being his child, first being saved, right? A child of God who surrendered to Christ in repentant faith. And then, after you're saved, honoring Him with your life. That's what matters. And this is serious. Look, as Christians, we're all building a wall for the glory of God. Once we became His children, once we surrendered to Him in saving faith, once we were delivered from Satan over to God by grace through faith in Christ alone, the foundation was set, saved, and now as Christians, We're all building on that foundation. You could say a building. I'll say a wall to fit this. What does your wall look like? The wall gets built up as we bear fruit for God, as we do good works that glorify God, as we fight sin and pursue holiness, as we forgive 
for God's glory as we honor God with our lives. What does your wall look like? Is it a flimsy cardboard tiny little thing or is it strong and firm and growing for the glory of God? The call, put on your armor, pick up your weapons, God's word, prayer, and so on. Fight in the spiritual battle at hand and build that wall. (laughs) What about you? Third, Nehemiah encouraged the people by saying, our God will fight for us, verses 19 through 20. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Isn't Nehemiah a great leader? Look, Nehemiah remained inside the city, overseeing the entire process of the building preparation. He started within days of his arrival, and the whole enterprise was completed within seven weeks. Think about that. Despite the threat to the workers' lives that it entailed. Also, he motivated the people, and he dominates every part of the story from beginning to end. He's a great leader. It was Nehemiah who ensured that in the face of violent opposition, the men were alerted to the danger setting around the clock watch. When the threat became more serious, Nehemiah ensured that guards were stationed on the wall at key points. When the threat subsided, it was Nehemiah who kept up the guard by having half his men build and half his men keep watch, all of whom were armed to ensure that they maintained their mental vigilance. As one noted, the story portrays a man endowed with a profound sense of leadership and skill, but also one who remained firmly identified with the people, exuding courage and fortitude, strength and resilience at every turn. That's right. That's Nehemiah. He led by example. He corrected error. We're going to see that as we move on through this. He encouraged the people. He looked unto God. He was courageous. He knew what was right. And he motivated the other people around him to do what was right. He stayed focused on his great task. And he led by example, full of faith, love for God, and valor. We see his great leadership again in verses 19 and 20. Our God will fight for us. See what he does. He sees a problem. And he comes up with a solution. That's a good leader. The work is great and extensive. We're separated far from one another on the wall. So wherever you hear the sound of a trumpet rally to us there, sounds good. And then our God will fight for us. Isn't that interesting? Here's the plan. If danger comes, we rally together and we fight the enemy. And then here's the plan. Our God will fight for us. So what is it? What's the plan? We fight or God fights? What is it? It's both. (laughs) Look, this wasn't meant to be taken as a sign that there was nothing for them to do. They didn't need to worry about all, all, all the threat against them because God would take care of it without their having to lift a finger. No, no, no. Because sovereignty doesn't work like that. In the providence of God, He works perfectly. And guess what? We work. (laughs) That's how it works. God is working on our behalf as His children. Oh yes, very well. (laughs) And look, we are called to give our impassioned effort to the full in doing what God calls us to do. So we trust Him and we do His good work passionately until glory. Look, Nehemiah had no doubt that building the wall around Jerusalem was the Lord's will. Therefore, he had no doubt that God would see the Jews through these difficulties in whatever way He deemed best. As one said, God was a warrior who would come in the midst of war and assure them the victory. That's right. 
So here's the truth. Our God will indeed fight for us as children, and our call is to obey Him and to leave the rest up to Him. Because then, whatever happens, victory or defeat, we get the ultimate victory, but whatever happens is best. Do we really trust God? Paul said in prison, I will be delivered either by life or by death. Paul served God in the prison. He trusted God to do what's best, knowing that God would do what's best. Note that Paul was delivered physically from that prison, released alive. Later down the line, in another prison, he was delivered by death. And he went to heaven. Ultimate deliverance. Either way, God fought for him. God was with him. God never left him nor forsaked him. God worked it out for Paul's eternal good. And so God always does his part perfectly. The question is, will we trust him? Will we build? Will we do his good work until glory? That's our call. Fourth, the people labored on, verses 21 through 23. So we labored in the work. Half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. What a picture. I mean, what a great picture. God's people continuing to build, even when it's stressful, even when it's hard, even when they are surrounded by enemies. Look, they continue to do God's good work. What a wonderful picture. Isn't that us? Keep on. What else are we going to do? Keep on. These verses show the awesome dedication and diligence with which the people worked. Verse 22 tells us that the builders have made a tremendous sacrifice by staying in Jerusalem. Many families who live several miles away uh, many of them had families who lived several miles away, and they probably took whatever opportunity they could to go see their families and to lend them some support. So they'd go home, and then they'd go to Jerusalem and work, and then they'd go home and then continue working. But with the threat of the enemy looming over them, it was necessary for them to stay in Jerusalem so that the builder's servant could stand guard at night and awaken his master if there was an attack. So stay alert, work hard. Stay alert, work hard. You see the people's seriousness in this endeavor and the fact that no one took off their clothes except to wash them. That phrase in the Hebrew is difficult, but the intent of the verse is very clear. Each one kept himself in constant readiness. Stay alert and work hard. Stay alert and work hard. Stay alert and work hard until the work is done. That's right. And that's our call. Note that that's the mark of a true believer. They do, they work, they act, they obey, they pursue good works and honor the King of Kings because love compels them to do that. As children of God, He wants us to work hard for His glory and our call is to get to it. Ephesians 2.10 says that while we aren't saved by works, but by grace through faith in Christ alone, look, we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So, That's what we must be about, good works, meaning works that honor and glorify God now that we're saved children of God. 
Philippians 2.12 says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not to work for salvation, that's impossible, but to work out what God has already worked into us, which means that because we're now saved, we must then live out our faith with action. James 2.26 says that faith without works is dead. And then in 2 Timothy 2.6, Paul exhorts Christians to work hard for the glory of God because we love Him. And we want to please Him and make the most of our short lives. He says, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. And then again, there again, He's exhorting us in Christ to work hard for the Lord because that lasts, that has eternal value. That pleases God. The word hardworking literally means to toil intensely and to sweat and to strain to the point of exhaustion. And just like a farmer is to work hard like that to get his crop, so too are we as Christians called to work hard for the glory of God because we love Him and we want to please Him. What a challenge. What a privilege. What a calling that because we love Him, we then put our hands to the plow and start working, building a wall for His glory. Working at holiness, working hard at becoming godly men and women, working hard to become good spouses, good parents, good children, working hard at our battles against sin and Satan, working hard at serving God, working hard at bearing eternal fruit, working hard to the very end. Certainly, He deserves that much from us. How are you doing? You're working, you're building, you're bearing fruit. This matters, this lasts. This pleases God, the God whom you love, the God who loves you. You picture it? Hey, Nehemiah, man, you really need to change your clothes. (laughs) Sorry, no time. Too busy working for the Lord. Too busy doing the work of God. Lord, help us to have that same God-honoring mindset. Please, 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 change and wash your clothes. That's supposed to bring a laugh. But also, but also work hard for the glory of God. May God speak to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be consumed with You, with pleasing You, with glorifying You, consumed doing Your work while we are here. Help us not to be consumed with trivial things that don't matter, Lord. Help us to be consumed with the things that do matter, eternal things. Building the wall for Your glory. Working. Serving. Bearing eternal fruit. Fighting sin. Drawing near to You. Living for Your glory, honor, and pleasure. Lord, help us. And as we look at everything that was going on in Nehemiah, Help us to apply that in a way that glorifies You. Help us to be workers. And help us, Lord, to trust in You and Your sovereignty, Your providence, Your goodness, knowing that You know what's going on even when we don't. Comfort us. Speak to us. Energize us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.